Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 5 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Eleanor of Provence, Chapter 1, Part 1. Eleanor of Provence was perhaps the most unpopular queen that ever presided over the court of England. She was unfortunately called to share the crown and royal dignity of a feeble-minded sovereign at an earlier age than any of her predecessors for at the time of her marriage with king henry she had scarcely completed her fourteenth year a period of life when her education was imperfect her judgment unformed and her character precisely that of a spoiled child of precocious beauty and genius perilous gifts which in her case served but to foster vanity and self-sufficiency this princess was the second of the five beautiful daughters of Berenger, Count of Provence, the grandson of Alfonso, King of Aragon. Berenger was the last and most illustrious of the royal Provençal counts. And even had he not been the sovereign of the land of song, his own verses would have entitled him to a distinguished rank among the troubadour poets. His consort Beatrice, daughter of Thomas, Count of Savoy, was scarcely less celebrated for her learning and literary powers. From her accomplished parents, the youthful Eleanor inherited both a natural taste and a practical talent for poetry, which the very air she breathed tend to foster and encourage. Almost before she entered her teens, she had composed a heroic poem in her native Provençal tongue. This work is still in existence, and is to be found in manuscript, in the Royal Library at Turin. The composition of this romance was the primary cause to which the princess, or as she was then styled, the Infanta of Provence, owed her elevation to the crown matrimonial of England. Her father's major domo and confidant, Romeo, was the person to whose able management Count Berenger was indebted for his success in matchmaking his portionless daughters with the principal potentates of Europe. No doubt, to Romeo's sagacious advice, the following steps taken by young Eleanor may be attributed. She sent to Richard, Earl of Cornwall, Henry III's brother, a fine Provençal romance of her own indicting, on the adventures of Blandia of Cornwall and Guillaume of Maramas, his companion, who undertook great perils for the love of the Princess Briende, and her sister Irlande, probably Britain and Ireland, dames of incomparable beauty. Richard of Cornwall, to whom the young Infanta sent, by way of a courtly compliment, 
a poem so appropriately furnished with a paladin of cornwall for a hero was then at poitou preparing for a crusade in which he hoped to emulate his royal uncle and namesake richard the first he was highly flattered by the attention of the young princess who was so celebrated for her personal charms that she was called eleanor la belle but as it was out of his power to testify his grateful sense of honor by offering his hand and heart to the royal provencal beauty in return for her romantic rhymes he being already the husband of one good lady the daughter of the great earl protector pembroke he obligingly recommended her to his brother henry the third for a queen that monarch whose share of personal advantages was but small and whose learning and inventiveness far exceeded his wit and judgment had been disappointed in no less than five attempts to enter the holy pale of matrimony with as many different princesses henry would fain have espoused a princess of scotland whose eldest sister had married his great minister hubert de burgh but his nobles from jealousy of hubert dissuaded him from this alliance henry then vainly sued for a consort in the courts of bretagne austria and bohemia and at length wholly dispirited by his want of success in every matrimonial negotiation into which he had entered the royal celebs having arrived at the age of twenty-five began no doubt to imagine himself devoted to a life of single blessedness and remained four years without further attempts to provide himself with a queen in twelve thirty five however he again took courage and offered his hand to joanna the daughter of the earl of ponthieu and having for the first time in his life received a favorable answer to his proposals a contract of marriage with this lady was signed and ambassadors dispatched for the pope's dispensation but when they were within a few days journey of rome henry sent word that he had altered his mind and charged them not to proceed this sudden change of purpose was occasioned by the agreeable impression henry had received from his brother richard earl of cornwall of the beauty and brilliant genius of his fair correspondent eleanor of provence the treaty was privately opened in june twelve thirty five and as soon as henry thought proper to make known to his court that he had broken his engagement with the maid of ponthieu his nobles according to hemingford were so obliging as to recommend him to marry the very lady on whom he had secretly fixed his mind as louis the ninth of france afterwards styled saint louis was married to eleanor's eldest sister the infanta marguerite of provence henry's counsellors were of opinion that great political advantages might be derived from this alliance henry discreetly made choice of three sober priests for his procurators at the court of count berenger the bishops of Eli and Lincoln, and the prior of Hurl, to these were added the master of the temple. Though Henry's age more than doubled that of the fair maid of Provence, of whose charms and accomplishments he had received such favorable reports, and he was aware that the poverty of the generous count, her father, was almost proverbial, yet the king's constitutional covetousness impelled him to demand the enormous portion of twenty thousand marks, with this fairest flower of the land of roses and sweet song count berenger in reply objected on the part of his daughter to that very inadequate dower henry would be able to settle upon her during the life of his mother queen isabella henry on this 
proceeded to lower his demands from one sum to another, till finding that the impoverished but high-spirited Provençal count was inclined to resent his sordid manner of bargaining for the nuptial portion, and being seriously alarmed lest he should lose the lady, he in a great fright wrote to his ambassadors, to conclude the marriage forthwith, either with money or without, but at all events to secure the lady for him, and conduct her safely to England without delay. The contract was then joyfully signed by Count Berenger, and the Infanta Eleanor was delivered, with all due solemnity, to the ambassadors. Henry, in the course of his matrimonial negotiations with the Count of Provence, addressed two letters, one to the Count and the other to the Countess of Provence, in which he requests them to permit the nuptials of Eleanor to be postponed till the feast of St. Martin, and to explain to their daughter that such was his wish. Eleanor was dowered in the reversion of the queen mother, Isabella of Angoulême's dower, whose settlement is recapitulated in the marriage treaty between Henry and his future consort, but no immediate settlement is specified for the young queen. When the royal bride commenced her journey to England, she was attended on her progress by all the chivalry and beauty of the south of France, a stately train of nobles, ladies, minstrels, and young lures, with crowds of humbler followers. She was treated with peculiar honors by Thibau, the poet king of Navarre, who feasted the fair Provençal princess and her company for five days, and attended her in person, with all his knights and nobles, to the French frontier. There she was met and welcomed by her eldest sister, the consort of that most amiable and virtuous kings, St. Louis, and after receiving the congratulations of these illustrious relatives, she embarked for England, landed at Dover, and, on the 4th of January, 1236, was married to King Henry III at Canterbury, by the Archbishop, St. Edmund of Canterbury. Piers of Langtoff gives us the following description of the royal bride. Henry, our king, at Westminster took to wife, the earl's daughter of Provence, the fairest May in life. Her name is Eleanor, of gentle nurture. Beyond the sea there was no such creature. All contemporary chronicles, indeed, whether in halting English rhymes, or sonorous Latin prose, to say nothing of the panegyrical strains of her countrymen, the Provençal poets, are agreed in representing this princess as well-deserving the surname of La Belle. King Henry conducted this youthful consort to London in great pride, attended by a splendid train of nobility and ecclesiastics, who had accompanied the sovereign to Canterbury in order to assist at his nuptials. Preparations of the most extraordinary magnificence were made for the approaching coronation of the newly wedded queen, which was appointed to take place on the feast of St. Fabian and St. Sebastian, six days only after the bridal, being the 20th of January. Previous to that August ceremony, Henry had caused great improvements to be made in the palace of Westminster for the reception of his young consort. There is a precept in the 20th year of his reign, directing that the king's great chamber at Westminster be painted a good green color, like a curtain that in the great gable or frontispiece of the said chamber a french inscription should be painted and that the king's little wardrobe should also be painted of a green color to imitate a curtain the queen's chamber was beautified and adorned with historical paintings at the same time 
the saturday before the queen was crowned henry laid the first stone of the lady chapel in westminster abbey we read also that the good citizens of london in their zealous desire of doing honor to their beautiful young queen set about the scarcely less than herculean labor of cleansing their streets from mud and all other offensive accumulations with which they were at that season of the year rendered almost impassable this laudable purification which must have been regarded almost as a national blessing being happily effected the loyal citizens prepared all sorts of costly pageantry before unheard of to grace the coronation festival and delight the young queen eleanor was just at the happy age for enjoying the spectacle of all the gay succession of brave shows and dainty devices so elegantly detailed by matthew paris who after describing streets hung with different colored silks garlands and banners and with lamps cresets and other lights at night concludes by saying but why need i recount the train of those who perform the offices of the church why describe the profusion of dishes which furnish the table the abundance of venison the variety of fish the diversity of wine the gaiety of the jugglers and the comeliness of the attendants whatever the world could produce for glory or delight was there conspicuous but the most remarkable feature of the coronation of eleanor of provence must have been the equestrian procession of the citizens of london who on that occasion claimed the office of cellarers to the king of england the claim of his loyal citizens having been wisely granted they venturously mounted swift horses and rode forth to accompany the king and queen from the tower clothed in long garments embroidered with gold and silk of divers colors they mounted to the number of three hundred and sixty their steeds were finely trapped in array with shining bits and new saddles each citizen bearing a gold or silver cup in his hand for the royal use the king's trumpeters sounding before them and so rode they in at the royal banquet better riders belike were they then the men who wear long gowns in the city of london in these degenerate days and serve the king and that noble company with wine according to their duty the mayor of london andrew buckerell the pepperer headed this splendid civic cavalcade and claimed the place of master michael Bilot, the deputy of albini earl of arundel the grand bottler or pincerna of england but he was repulsed by order of the king who said no one ought by right to perform that service but master michael the mayor submitted to the royal decision in this matter of high ceremonial and served the two bishops at the king's right hand after the banquet the earl bottler received the cup out of which the king had drunk as a matter of right and master michael his deputy received the earl's robes gilbert de sanford claimed for the service of keeping the queen's chamber door at this coronation the queen's bed and all its furniture as her chamberlain alms were bounteously distributed to the poor on this occasion king henry with all his faults being one of the most charitable princes the most sumptuous and splendid garments ever seen in england were worn at the coronation of the young queen of henry the third the peaceful and vigorous administration of pembroke and hubert de burgh had filled england with wealth and luxury drawn from their commerce with the south of france the citizens of london wore at this splendid ceremony garments called cyclades a sort of upper robe made not only of silk 
but of velvet worked with gold. Henry the Third, who was, like his father, the greatest fop in his dominions, did not, like King John, confine the orders of his wardrobe rolls to the adornment of his own person, but liberally issued benefactions of satin, velvet, cloth of gold, and ermine, for the apparelling of his royal ladies. No homely dress of green cloth was ordered for the attire of his lovely queen. But when a mantle lined with ermine was made by his tailors for himself, another as rich was given out for Eleanor. The elegant fashion of chaplets of gold and jewels, worn over the hair, was adopted by this queen, whose jewelry was of a magnificent order, and is supposed to have cost her doting husband nearly thirty thousand pounds, an enormous sum if reckoned according to the value of our money. Eleanor had no less than nine guirlands or chaplets for her hair, formed of gold filigree and clusters of colored precious stones. For state occasions she had a great crown, most glorious with gems, worth fifteen hundred pounds at that era. Her girdles were worth five thousand marks, and the coronation present given by her sister, Queen Margarita France, was a large silver peacock, whose train was set with sapphires and pearls, and other precious stones wrought with silver. This elegant piece of jewelry was used as a reservoir for sweet waters, which were forced out of its beak into a basin of silver chaste. Henry did not forget his own apparel when he endowed his queen so richly with jewels. He was noted as the first prince who wore the costly material called bodikins, and, arrayed in a garment of this brilliant tissue of gold, he sat upon his throne and glittered very gloriously when his young and lovely queen shared his third coronation. The expenses of Eleanor's coronation were enormous. So great was the outlay beyond the king's resources that Henry expended the portion of his sister Isabella, just married to the emperor of Germany, for the purpose of defraying them. When he petitioned the lords for a thirtieth of his subjects' property, as a relief from his difficulties, they told him, they had amply supplied funds both for his marriage and that of the empress, and as he had wasted the money, he might defray the expenses of his wedding as he could. Great offense, it seems, had already been taken by the nation at the number of foreigners, especially Italians, who had accompanied or followed Queen Eleanor to England. Among these were her uncle, Peter of Savoy, one of the younger brothers of the Countess of Provence. Henry created Peter Earl of Richmond, and, at the suit of the queen, bestowed upon him that part of London since called the Savoy, from this prince. He paid the crown but the nominal quit rent of three broad arrows. Peter founded there a noble palace, which the queen, his niece, afterwards purchased of him for her son Edmund, Earl of Lancaster. In the course of one short year, the ascendancy which the uncle of this young queen gained over the plastic mine of Henry was so considerable that the administration of the kingdom was entirely left to his discretion, and all the patronage of the church and state passed through his hands. Richard, Earl of Cornwall, at that time the heir presumptive to the throne, though greatly attached to the king his brother, reprobated Henry's conduct in permitting the intrusion and interference of the queen's foreign relatives and attendants. Bidding his brother follow the prudent example of their brother-in-law, the emperor, 
who, when he received their sister, the Princess Isabella, sent back all her train of followers. The King of France, too, he reminded Henry, had taken the same course when he married the elder sister of Queen Eleanor. In the fourth year of her marriage, Eleanor brought an heir to England. The young prince was born on the 16th of June, 1239, at Westminster, and received the popular name of Edward, in honor of Edward the Confessor, for whose memory Henry III cherished the deepest veneration. The celebrated Earl of Leicester was one of the godfathers of Prince Edward, and held him at the baptismal font. He was then in the height of favor both with Eleanor and the king. But the scene changed before the queen left her lying in chamber. For when she gave a grand festival on occasion of her churching, and the king summoned all the great ladies of the land to attend the queen to church, Leicester brought his newly wedded wife, the king's sister, to perform her divorce to Eleanor, but was received with the burst of fury by Henry, who called him the seducer of his sister, and an excommunicated man, and ordered his attendants to turn him out of the palace. Leicester endeavored to remonstrate, but Henry would not hear him, and he was expelled, weeping with rage, and vowing vengeance against the young queen, to whose influence he attributed this reverse. Independently of his noble taste in architecture, of which Westminster Abbey is a standing proof, Henry III was undoubtedly possessed of a love for the fine arts. For we find, in the seventeenth year of his reign, a precept directed to the sheriff of Hampshire, commanding him to cause the king's wainscoted chamber, in the castle of Winchester, to be painted with Saxon histories, and the same pictures with which it had been painted before which proves not only that historical paintings in oil on wainscot were then in use, but that they had been painted so long that the colors were faded and required renewing. Again, we have a precept of Henry III, 23 years after this period, which runs thus. Pay out of our treasury to Odo, the goldsmith, and Edward, his son, 117 shillings and 10 pence, for oil, varnish, and colors bought, and pictures made in the chamber of our queen at Westminster, between the octaves of Holy Trinity and the Feast of St. Barnabas, the same year, in the twenty-third year of our reign. Among other proofs of attention paid by Henry to his young queen on the birth of his heir, we find that he ordered the chamber behind her chapel in his palace of Westminster, and the private chamber of that apartment, supposed to be Eleanor's dressing-room, to be freshly wainscoted and lined, and that a list or border should be made, well painted, with images of our Lord and angels, with incense pots scattered over the list or border. He also directed that the four evangelists should be painted in the queen's chamber, and that a crystal vase should be made for keeping the relics he possessed. A few curious particulars, illustrative of the interior of the ancient palace of our English kings at Woodstock, may be gathered from the following minute instructions, contained in a precept addressed by Henry III, in the twenty-fifth of his reign, to the keeper of that palace, directing him to cause an extension of the iron trellises, on the steps leading from our chamber to the herbarium, or garden, also of the wooden lattices in two windows of our queen's chamber, and to cause a pent to be made over these windows, covered with lead, and an aperture to be made in the pent, between the hall and our queen's chamber, and the chapel towards the borders of our herbarium, 
and two windows of white glass looking towards the said borders. Two spikes, also in the gable of our hall, and windows of the same kind on the east of the hall, and pictures now in the hall are to be repaired. And we desire that all the courts, fountains, and walls of our houses there be repaired. This reign affords the first example of a poet laureate, in the person of one Master Henry, to whom, by the appellation of our beloved versificator, the king orders one hundred shillings to be given in payment of his arrears. This officer was in all probability introduced into the royal household by the Provencal queen, who was, as we have seen, herself a poet, and who had been accustomed in her early youth to be surrounded by minstrels and troubadours in the literary court of her accomplished parents. Henry III was also a patron of literature, and a great lover of Provencal poetry. Fariel points out several romances written under the superintendence of this king, who, when he married Eleanor of Provence, received a partner whose tastes and pursuits certainly assimilated with his own, and to this circumstance may, no doubt, be attributed the unbounded influence which she acquired over his mind, which she retained long after the bloom of youth and beauty had passed away. End of section 5、you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening and have a great day.